Welcome to Slate Money Travel, your guide this week to staying in hotels, which it turns out there's a lot to be said about staying in hotels. I am not the person to say it, but I, I know the person who is. Pavia Rosati, welcome. Felix, I am honored to be a guest on Slate Money talking about hotels. But first, before you do that, introduce yourself. Who are you? I'm Pavia Rosati. I am the founder of Fathom, which is an editorial travel platform that covers the world through a mix of personal stories and curated guides, focusing on independent and boutique and really special hotels, experiences, and places all over the world. And if you want to see what we're about, we are at fathomaway.com. And before Fathom, you actually worked at Slate. I mean, for 15 minutes <laughs> when the internet was a baby. But yeah, no. In yeah. what, 1995? Uh, yeah. It was brief and glorious. I really liked it. The glory days. So we are going to talk about hotels and the economics of hotels and what has happened to hotel prices, especially luxury hotels. We're going to talk about what value consists in. We're going to talk about whether there are any arbitrages. We're going to talk about junk fees. Just a whole bunch of glorious stuff. And at the end of it all, um, you'll probably just be going to Fathom to work out where to stay because it turns out there's <laughs> very, very little sort of one-size-fits-all rules when it comes to this industry. But it's a fascinating thing to talk about. So that's all coming up on Slate Money Travel. So, Pavia, you are the best traveled person I know. That's nice of you. And you have a website which is all about travel and Correct me if I'm wrong, but a massive part of how you think about travel and what you do when you travel and the, the sort of locus of your life for so many years since you left Slate. Um, <laughs> where I worked for a minute. Where but, you worked for a minute. Yeah. Is hotels. It's a big part of covering the travel industry. Yeah. So I guess my first question is, like, is is that – just because hotels are where the money is? Or is that because where you stay and how you stay when you travel somewhere is absolutely core to the experience of traveling? Well, you've sort of answered your own question there, right? I mean, it is for certain people. Where you stay is important if that's what you care about. If you care about food and culinary experiences or what you want to get out of a vacation and time away from home, then you'll care less about where you're sleeping and more about which reservations you're getting and which food truck you're able to get to on time. If the place that you're going, like say you're going on a resort vacation in the Caribbean, then the place where you're staying and the hotel or the villa, um, which has become an increasingly popular option for people, does matter a great deal. Why hotels matter? They're sort of sexy, right? It's kind of like this, you could argue this, these are the fashion designers of the travel world. These are who are doing new things, who are coming up with new looks, who are creating the new experiences that then trickle down to how we live in our homes and um, when we're not in a hotel room. So what is a what is a good example of the famous 
blue sweater and the devil wears Prada where like, you know, Meryl Streep is like, you didn't invent that color. You didn't pick out that color. That was me. I picked out that color and it trickled down to you. What started in hotels and is now something we all have in our homes? You know something? As I was saying that, I was like, oh, what is the blue sweater that he's going <laughs> to ask me to come up with? And the... I haven't thought about that, and I haven't really compared hotels to fashion designers before talking to you. (laughs) But so I'm developing a theory on the fly here. But I wonder if like scented candles and the notion of scenting our homes, if that was something that we started doing with potpourri or if that's something that hotels started doing that we started doing at home. I don't know. So I'm just throwing that out there. But I do think, okay, do you know what? I think the way in which people have come to fetishize pillows on their bed I think that probably. I think <laughs> there are the hotel, always too many pillows. I think the hotel industry probably uh, needs to raise their hand and take responsibility for way too many decorative pillows on a bed <laughs> that need to be thrown off the bed before actually sleeping and using the two pillows that you care about. So, in any case, um, partly because some people really care about it, and partly because this is where the money is, you spend a lot of time in hotels, thinking about hotels, writing about hotels, and because this is slate money, the first thing we're going to ask is. What the fuck happened to hotel prices over the past couple of years? You are not wrong. And what the fuck happened to hotel prices is, you know, the dreaded C word that happened to everybody. I mean, what happened to the price of eggs? What happened to the price of a... Um... Eggs went down after they went up. Okay. And you know what? Hotel prices are going back down after they skyrocketed. So we had we had a certain amount of revenge travel after COVID, and then it's going away. We, um, you, we had revenge travel, and we had limited supply. Well, this is slate money. Let's talk about <laughs> supply and demand, Felix. Um, during COVID, what ended up happening was the world was closed to a lot of people. So if we want to take the U.S. market, there was a lot more pressure on the inventory that was in the U.S. because travelers, either they didn't want to cross an ocean, they didn't want to get on a plane, they couldn't because countries were closed. Japan and Australia, I mean, entire countries, very popular countries, just said, no vacancy, we're not even letting you in. So that just put a lot more pressure on the hotels that were available in the United States. And you are the economist, I am not. But when uh, demand goes up and inventory does not, that means what is available, the prices are going to go through the roof. Well, in fact, inventory went down because... Inventory yeah. went down globally. And, and it went down even domestically because it was just impossible to find staff. Yes, that gets to one of the other points, which is... The hotels that were opening, a lot of them were not operating at capacity, the way that restaurants were not operating at, at capacity because, you're absolutely right, without the staff, we can, if we have 300 rooms but we have one half the staff, we can't service those rooms and deliver the same experience that we would like to. Therefore, a lot of the rooms are going to stay empty, right? And there are – like here we are in, in New York City where big hotels, the you know the Four Seasons in Midtown, the Gramercy Park Hotel in – Gramercy Park, like, are still closed. For other reasons, right? The Gramercy Park Hotel, that's boys being boys. <laughs> um, so, and you know what? What is, And there are a lot of things that happened. I mean, I don't want to talk about how sad I am that Nomad is gone from New York City because... Pavio's tearing up in the Slate studios here. It's not that she's tearing up. She's just rolling her eyes at that great hotel that is no longer there and those wonderful spaces that are now members' clubs at the NED, which is just, listen, it's not the superior experience that Nomad was. And that's a shame. I'm, I'm really sorry when great things end up closing for 
what I don't think are wonderful reasons. Well, you brought up members clubs. This is a oh yeah another new huge thing. new trend. Yes, huge new trend. Keep me away from everybody else. The you know the um, Soho House is now a public company listed on the stock exchange. Is rolling in money. I just got back from Mexico City where the Soho House is. Beyond, beyond, and enormous. And crazy. I know, like a global wait list of a hundred thousand people to get into something exclusive. Oh yeah, come on. And, but <laughs> but the interesting thing is that then a lot of those hundred thousand people, or how, however many members Soho House has, um, when they do go traveling, their sort of base case assumption is I'll just stay at Soho House, and that just takes it's it's a whole new way of experiencing. Um, I guess, like the cities that you're visiting around the world. Kind of a modern day Holiday Inn for people who think they're too cool to stay at a Holiday Inn, isn't it? <laughs> well, so. I mean, think about yeah. that, right? One of the values of a Hilton, one of, of a Holiday Inn, one of the reasons why these things became such global brands is because they delivered a consistency of experience no matter where you were in the world, right? McDonald's did a similar thing with fast food. Soho House, you could argue, is doing the same thing for Soho House members. They are making it safe to go to a city you might not know and choose a hotel because you go to um, an Expedia or just any online travel agency and click for, on hotels and you'll see 2,000 options for Paris and you're like, oh, God, I'm lost. Where do I start? I mean, you go to Fathom and you'll get a small curated <laughs> list, of course. But if you don't know who to go to for advice and you just go to the source of all, you know, to a general database where you can see everything, it's overwhelming. So what Soho House does for members is it narrows it down to one hotel in Rome, one hotel in Barcelona, and delivers on the experiences that people who are willing to be Soho House members expect and want. They want nice design. They want a good bar scene. They want a food experience. I don't think the food experience is as good as it should be at these restaurants, but they certainly do make it so that you don't have to worry about where to have dinner because if you're staying at Soho House, they will feed you. And this is this is the value that a Soho House gives. But I think if we want to look from an historical point of view, it's taking the same boxes that a Holiday Inn did. Soho House is not the first company to try and create a global chain of high design hotels with bar scenes. Like everyone and their mother has tried this. I know, but you don't need to be a member to stay at the Rosewood or to stay at an Amman. You just need to be willing to put your credit card down and pay for them, right? But increasingly, a lot of these brands are launching member clubs as components to the hotels that they have. And I think that phenomenon is less about creating um, a modern-day Holiday Inn all over the world and more about guaranteeing uh, consistency and a clientele in a market among locals. Because let's say that you are a member of the Amman Club in New York City, um, they're guaranteed that locals will keep coming. Oh, I have to go out for drinks. Well, I may as well go to my club because I am a member. So I think that is one of the reasons why hotels are increasingly launching members clubs because it ensures that a local population has incentive to frequent the hotel more often. Oh, that's so interesting. It's about getting the locals to stay in the hotel sure. rather than about sort of locking people in and saying, well, if I'm paying all of this money to be a member of Soho House, I may as well stay in the Soho House when I visit Berlin. They're members clubs that are doing two different things, right? Because Soho House began as a members club that then added hotels. 
So what? Th- so they are now counting on their members wanting the Soho House experience wherever they go in the world. I'm not a member of Soho House, so I'm presuming all of these things, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sure you've been to more Soho Houses than most members of Soho House. I did tour the Soho House Barcelona before it opened. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, the woman who is the general manager of the Soho House in Rome, which I hear excellent things about, comes from a traditional hotel, and she is an incredible woman. So they're, they're certainly hiring good people, and they are creating a good hotel product. That's Soho House Members Club adding hotels. Hotels adding a member component, I think, is about ensuring a more reliable revenue source from the people who live in the city who might not otherwise have reason to go to that hotel. Right, because most of us who live in the cities stay in hotels in that city vanishingly rarely. It's not something like the whole point is we live here. Yeah, I get invited to staycation at hotels and I'm like, I live here. I just, <laughs> I really like my bed. My apartment, even if it's a little bit shitty, is three times the size of your hotel room. And plus, you don't have to deal with the pillow management quite as much in your own hotel, <laughs> in your own bedroom. And I have an entire wardrobe to choose from in the morning. Um, I have staycationed in London. I spend a lot of time in London. I have an English husband. But we once checked into the hotel. And after dinner, Ben looked at me. He's like, let's just go home. (laughs) So we kind of went home. I was like, I'm so sorry. My husband's not feeling well. I think we should just go home. So what is it uh, that people are willing to pay for when it comes to hotels? Obviously, there's like the sky's the limit when it comes to hotel rooms. But in most places you want to visit, you can find somewhere to stay for like 150 Correct. bucks. Yeah, like yeah. when people spend more than that, when they're pay- paying like four, five, six hundred bucks or thousands, which is cheap, which is increasingly yeah. considered to be cheap. Like, what is it that what is it that I'm paying for when I'm paying that kind of money? You are paying for more than just a safe place to rest your head. Right. If all that you want is a safe place to rest your head, then you can find it for a couple hundred dollars a night. I mean, the average price of a hotel room in the United States was about one hundred and fifty seven dollars in the U.S. And other I don't know where I don't know how they got to that amount of money, because given that so many hotel rooms now, the starting rate for luxury is a thousand dollars on a cheap day. Um, There's obviously a lot of hotels for 20 bucks to bring the average down to one hundred and fifty. But. What you're getting is it's the whole wonderful mythology and ambiance and the stage setting of we're going to make a magic moment for you and we're going to make you feel so special upon check-in. We're going to delight all of your senses. We're going to decorate the room. We're going to have an installation in the elevator, like all of these things that are really set up and created to be, I mean, so one of the industry terms is like the wow moment. Um, This is what you're paying for. This is what you're paying for if you are paying premium dollars for this. But think about this, right? If we want to use another analogy, um, we talked about fashion, we can talk about lipstick. I can get a basic lipstick at Dwayne Reed for a couple of dollars. Or I can spend $50. And for $50, I'm getting the fancy packaging and I'm getting the experience and I'm getting to know that Tom Ford had something to do with what I'm wiping on my lips in a way that the $3 lipstick didn't. And if that makes me feel better about rouging my pucker, then <laughs> um, then that's why I'm willing to spend $50. And of course, 
better ingredients and all that stuff and blah, blah, blah. But by the same token, we also know that the same factory that makes Chanel is making bourgeois. So I can basically get very similar ingredients at a $12 price point or a $40 price point. So it has always struck me that hotel prices are one of the purest expressions of supply and demand that is out there. Um, That Virtually, even if you stay at a tiny little mom and pop hotel in the middle of nowhere somewhere, the price you pay is being determined by some incredibly sophisticated algorithm that they have as a sort of software as a service product. And um, and they're constantly changing the prices to optimize for revenue and always keep like a room free if someone wants it last minute and all of this kind of stuff. And the chances that you're paying exactly the same as the person in the room next to you is is nil, right? It's, it's like airline seats in that respect. I th- Yes. So it's funny. When I tour a hotel and I always say, okay, so what are the starting rates in low season and high seasons? I always follow up with, I know, I know, it's more art than science. But but it's actually more science than art in a way that like they, they almost don't control this. It's whatever the algorithm spits out is what the algorithm spits so out. So there are very sophisticated ways of managing – trends and projected occupancy and what do we need to keep the occupancy at a certain level and the ADR, the average daily rate, which is a key industry term that hotels look at as a really strong benchmark for their financial health. Yes. And these things fluctuate wildly. Um, I guess I guess insofar as the a lot of the ADR is outside the control of the hotel. It's really just a function of how many people are visiting that place and how much demand there is for hotel rooms in that place at that time. Maybe, maybe. But I'm going to counter this and say if if certain hotels know what the value that they're offering and what the value of the product that they're delivering is, they just may have what their prices are, right? If you want to go for a certain set menu at a three Michelin star restaurant, they're not going to necessarily bump their prices up or down. They're going to charge you $400 for the meal throughout the season. So while there may be some... Restaurants are the exact opposite. They really do have like literal menu prices. But they they do have prices. Hotels are not super dissimilar because they have fixed costs, right? The energy bill, well, they have fixed costs, but that fluctuate. Labor costs, energy costs have been fluctuating wildly. Energy costs, that's one of the reasons why hotel prices in Europe went through the roof a couple of years ago because the Ukraine war broke out. Suddenly, a major energy source in Europe was cut off. And friends of mine who have hotels on the Amalfi Coast told me that from one year to the next, their energy bill went up by a factor of 10. They can't raise their room rates by a factor of 10, right? But so the I know we're sort of circling around this. There is fluctuation within the prices, but it's not as though the family in room 14 is spending $200 a night and the family in room 15 is spending $1,200 a night. It might be more like $1,200 and $1,000 if somebody booked really early and got a special rate or locked it in. But it's definitely the case that the family in room 12, if they turned up four months later, could spend half as much. And I guess what the ultimate place that I was going with this is coming back to what you were talking about investing in design and service and the wow factor and something special. Um, One of the things that we 
saw in the at the very beginning of the sort of revenge travel um, phenomenon in, in sort of 2021 was a bunch of hotels that had historically charged, say, $300 a night. Um, having availability on their on their website. And then the algorithm was spitting out like $600, $700, $800 a night for these rooms. And they basically had to decide. They had to make a decision at that point, which was, do I charge what the market will bear and what people are clearly willing to spend to, to, to stay in this hotel? Or is there a point at which when I'm charging $700 a night but delivering a $300 a night experience, people are just going to be very disappointed and I don't want to disappoint my guests. That is a lot of what ended up happening after the pandemic. We saw prices being prices went through the roof and because there was no staff or there was a lot less staff, they were not guests were not getting the experience that they paid for. And this raises another really important thing that we have to talk about when we talk about prices. It's not just what am I spending? Do I it's really a question of do I feel like I got my money's worth, right? If you spend a lot of money on an experience, but you feel like, you know what? I work hard for my money and that really made me feel great. I feel good about how I spent that $1000. I feel good about how I spent that $60. Then you're okay with what you spent. If you walk away from an experience feeling like a sucker, or if you walk away feeling like, I spent that much and what did I get for it, then that was not worth the money, right? So, and by the way, this is not unique to hotels, right? My husband and I saw Cabaret in London. He refused to tell me what the tickets cost. I don't care what they cost because it was an extraordinary experience. We went to see a play last night on the Upper West Side, and I was like, eh, 200 bucks. I don't really think it was that worth it, right? So... If you are getting an experience that feels satisfying and it nursed your soul and it helped you go back home to your regular grind and feel refreshed, then that was money well spent. Broadly speaking, in the hotel industry, is is there what an economist might consider to be price efficiency? Insofar as I am spending more money, I am likely to get a better experience. In theory, that's how it should work. In, the, in theory, that's how it should in work. Theory, in theory, that's practice, how it should work. You is know that what? how it works? No, not necessarily, right? So I had an experience at a beautiful resort in Anguilla, which I'm just going to mention. I'm going to name check because it is one of the nicest Caribbean islands, in part because there are so few big brands there. It's just really people use authentic as something that they crave. If that's what you crave, it's go the word to, of the year, Pavia. Go to Anguilla. It's been the word of the year for a couple of years. Um, the and the experience that I had at the hotel, I don't eat breakfast. I drink coffee. I don't eat breakfast. But the night before at the bar, I had a cocktail, and I was like, "What is this lovely little thing I'm nibbling on in this cocktail?" And it was a pink pineapple. Have you ever oh, had? I a- love the pink. They're, they're called glow something. They're so good. Oh my God, they're so good. Pineapples, they're amazing. So this was my first time having a pink pineapple. (laughs) So they said, oh yeah, we have them at breakfast. So I went to the breakfast buffet and I got a plate of fruit. I love when somebody cuts the pineapple for me. (laughs) (laughs) I like to cook, but I don't like hacking a pineapple. Anyway, I took a picture of it because I wanted to remember what a pink pineapple looks like. So I know, because I've looked at this photo since, I had about the equivalent of a cup and a half worth of sliced fruit on my plate. I got a bill for $69. It's an expensive pineapple. It's an expensive pineapple. 
And you know what? I kind of felt like a sucker. I kind of felt like a sucker. And I understand if I'm going back to the buffet bar and loading up on a caviar omelet five times that that might be worth $70. But to say that that this hotel, and with all of its sophisticated algorithms, didn't see and wasn't able to know that there was no way that that's what – they should have been embarrassed to present me that bill. And it made me – it totally undermined the experience of staying at the hotel. This one experience. And was that was that bill like presented to you in the breakfast room yeah. at the time? It's not something you suddenly discovered when you were checking out. Correct. Right. And I was like, huh. What I did discover upon checkout was that the morning yoga classes that I thought were just, oh, we're offering this at the resort. No, it was in fact $50 a yoga class. And I was like, oh, okay. It was a terrific yoga class, and she was a wonderful teacher, but I was like, at no point was this not presented as anything that was something I would have to pay for. If I'm signing up for a massage, I know I'm going to – I'm out a couple hundred bucks because that's what they charge. But the yoga class, at no point was it clear that that's what the money was, right? And so there's a lot of talk about junk fees in the travel space, and I love that the government is spending time trying to legislate against junk fees, but the concept of junk fees – I mean, I would – I came to think of this as almost a sucker fee. And, you know, Felix, I don't care how rich you are and how much money you have. $69 for my one and a half cups of sliced fruit or for your four-year-old kid taking two bites out of a blueberry muffin and getting charged full rate for that? No. That's 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 something that I would really like to see the industry correct for um, as they come out of this time when – People were willing to spend anything during the years of revenge travel because we had so much pent-up demand. We're moving out of that. Things are starting to normalize now. Um, and I hope that that's one of the things that hotels take a closer look at. One, one of the things that I learned as a cub financial journalist when I was working for a magazine that would do like barter arrangements with luxury hotels that, you know, they would get a quarter page ad in the magazine and in return we'd like get nights in the hotel and that kind of thing was that – Staying for free at a luxury hotel can be extremely expensive. <laughs> well, don't touch the minibar ever, <laughs> ever, ever, ever. <laughs> but exactly. But it's also random things like, oh, yeah, I went down and, and joined the yoga class and then I had a bite of pineapple. And the next thing you know, I'm spending more money on this free hotel room than I would have done if I'd stayed in a normal hotel. Yeah. Well, I mean, and again. I, I, I'm assuming here that the logic is that they get extra revenue and that on some level when you're charging four figure rates per night it is low as a percentage of the cost of the room so the people who can afford that much for a room presumptively don't care that much well i don't know i'm really going to come back to i don't care how rich you are getting a bill for 70 dollars for two bites of a blueberry muffin is yeah. not you just don't feel like that's a good use of your money but it's also a question of like what what is it you're paying for when you're paying for a room? Are you paying for the room or are you paying for like the experience of staying in the hotel? And so I would argue that a really good hotel is going to balance that properly. Let's think back maybe 10, 15 years ago when people used to get charged for Wi-Fi. And it's kind of like you're charging me for Wi-Fi. That's like charging me for the heating. Wi-Fi. But at the time, I suppose Wi-Fi in the early 2000s, to go even farther back, was considered an amenity such that they would charge for it. 
And then it got to be, well, if you're a member of our loyalty program or if you have a certain credit card, we'll waive the fee for Wi-Fi. It's been – and people were like, I shouldn't have to pay for Wi-Fi. And now we're at the point – I don't remember the last time that I saw a hotel charge for Wi-Fi. In fact, we used to note when we launched Fathom. And so we've been – we launched Fathom in um, 2011. And we would sometimes note, oh, and the Wi-Fi is free as a bonus. We don't even mention that anymore because now it's assumed that the Wi-Fi is going to be free and is just an amenity the way that – water or the heating would be and my, my theory by the way for why wi-fi is free is not that it's like water or heating and just assumed to be there but rather that because everyone moved from their laptops to their phones and their phones have why have connectivity anyway everyone just stopped paying for it and that point and at that point there was no point in charging for it anymore yeah, I do also think, though, I, there was a lot of talk in the industry of this should just be baked into the cost of what we're paying for. Right. And to get back to the, you know, how do you balance what is an amenity and part of the experience and what is extra, I, this is where the hotels just need to balance how much more of a cost is this to me as opposed to actually if I have a yoga teacher come in and a the cost of a bunch of people signing up for this is a cost that we can assume in a way in which a hotel can assume the cost to, say, take two people hella skiing, right? That's an outside vendor. That's a separate cost. That's a whole other thing. So the hotel can maybe offer that as an experience, yeah, the, the, but that's the, certainly um, not something that's going to be free. The yoga class is what economists would call a non-rival good, that just because you're doing it doesn't mean that the person, someone else can't do it as well. Whereas the hotel room is a rival good. If you have that hotel room, no one else can have that hotel room. Oh, What's this term again? Rival goods and non-rival goods. Ooh, I'm writing this down. I like that. <laughs> um, yes. You know, and I would argue that something else that is something that's so easy to do, these small moments that end up feel, feeling nice, some hotels will just have free coffee in the lobby if there's a lot of people free who... Free coffee. Oh, can I, can I just like... Yes or no? Vent yes, no. about... Coffee, like number one, free coffee in the lobby is great. Number two, even better, free coffee in your room is great. Just put a fucking espresso machine in the room and everyone is happy. The idea that a hotel, and this happens in Europe a lot, it happens in the United States less, but still enough to be worrisome. The idea that a hotel, is it going to expect me? To, to wake up in your, the morning, put, to put have on, a shower, yeah. get dressed, go down to a breakfast room, sit down at a table, wait for someone to take my coffee order, let them disappear off and bring – no, I need the coffee before any of that. Increasing – yes. So that's a really nice example of something that is becoming a regular amenity. It's been a long time that I've – since I've checked into a hotel and didn't see coffee service there. Yeah. Yeah. Felix, the world is catching up to you. They're catching up to They're me. They're catching up to you. Also, I can report that a lot of hotels in Europe do have in-room coffee. They do. And yeah. and one of the things as well I've discovered is that if they don't, you can normally ask for it and they will magic something for you. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> but Although there was one hotel I stayed at in Germany, which shall remain nameless, which had a policy of you get a free espresso machine in your room if your room is of a certain caliber but if you're like in a lower quality room no sir i'm sorry that's not something well we offer. okay but hang on about 
I'm going to defend the nameless German hotel for one second. You get a certain class of service if you're paying for a business class seat on a plane that you don't get if you have bought a basic seat in the back of the plane. And so to a certain extent, they're willing to – they are incentivizing you to spend more money. So this is one of my grand theories of travel is that you are nearly always better off buying a swankier, upgradey kind of room at a lower-priced hotel than buying an entry-level room at a high-priced hotel. Oh, that's a good question. Um, Again, it depends if it depends what else you want out of the experience. If you want um, to have the front desk say, oh, Mr. Felix, how was the dinner that we arranged for you? Then you'll spend less money at the nicer hotel that has a really good concierge. If you'd rather not, if that's not as important to you and you just want to be able to have a bigger room overlooking the beach in Miami, then you would do the opposite. But that's what's so nice, right? You can spend more money at maybe like a lower class hotel um, or you spend less money at a fancier hotel depending what you want the experience to be. I'm just saying like for any given amount of money that you're spending, I have this feeling that like the quote unquote cheap rooms at the high end hotels always feel overpriced compared to the what feel like relatively speaking expensive rooms at the cheaper hotel even if it's actually the same amount of money. I'm going to maybe say not necessarily. Yeah, maybe I'm says gonna, not necessarily. Yeah, I'm going to say not necessarily because that cheaper room at the more expensive hotel, think about that. You're only spending so many hours in that room sleeping. But if you are staying at that really expensive hotel, you get to swan about in the lobby, you get to go to the hotel bar, you get to make you get to sit by their pool, which is probably a much nicer pool with more comfortable lounge chairs, Fluffier. right? All of that, fluffier pillows. Fluffier pillows. Yeah. So it could be, I mean, you know, do you, how much room do you really need in a hotel room? If I'm staying in a hotel room that's got a big sofa, I mean, there's a lot of sofas in hotel rooms that I've never had time to sit on because I don't spend <laughs> that much time Why, yeah. in the hotel room, right? And so if the hotel is a resorty sort of experience, and by that I mean they have nice public spaces that are activated with interesting programming and music and are sort of spaces that you want to spend time and sit in and, oh, look at that beautiful floral arrangement. Yeah, sure, I'll sit here and read a book. Um, then then that yeah, was a better it. use of $400. The other um, arbitrage I wanted to ask you about okay. is the – it does strike me that the way to in, increasingly, certainly in New York City, but I think just sort of globally, the way to save money on a hotel room is to abjure the high design boutiques and to go to the big chains, the Hyatts and the Hiltons and the Milton and the Marriott's and all of that kind of stuff. And the, you wind up somehow like just paying less that way. Is that true? Nah. I mean, listen, I had to stay in one of those big chain hotels one night in Alaska because it was 10 o'clock at night and we were kind of screwed. And we had to check into one of those hotels. 
and it was fine and it was nice and it was comfy and all that. But I was kind of like, oh, I lost tonight. I just lost. <laughs> you just can't bring yourself I to do it. I just lost. It was just – listen, but I want to stay in a boutique hotel. I want to stay in a place that doesn't feel like a cookie cutter of the same hotel that could be in any city anywhere in the world. I do want to be in a place that reflects something local about the environment that it's in because this is what I value in a hotel experience. I don't want to eat at a chain restaurant. I don't want to stay in a chain hotel. What those chain hotels do really brilliantly is incentivize people to frequent them through their loyalty programs, right? And so Marriott Bonvoy's loyalty program is especially great at this. And because but, – but what I would say here is if – and those points can add up and you can trade those points in to stay at really nice hotels for a lot less money. And if you have your credit card aligned with these, you're earning points in this way. And some people are very good at this arbitrage. Um, I am not one of those people. But a lot of people are very good at that. And these points I, – I know a lot of people who stay in fabulous ho- hotels and build entire vacations for very little money at luxury hotels because they leverage their points to stay at these hotels. What these chains are increasingly doing is recognizing that people do want to stay in boutique hotels and and have more independent-minded experience than cookie-cutter chains. And so they are buying smaller companies that are these boutique hotels, or rather that are more boutique. And so you end up leveraging the Marriott points to stay at a hotel that's part of the autograph collection or that's part of the luxury collection that you don't even necessarily know is a Marriott. Right. And and this is this is a long standing trend. And I, I mean, back in the day when I used to do much more of the sort of point kind of thing, I definitely noticed there were a bunch of like international Sheratons in places like Florence, which were amazing and didn't feel like Sheratony whatsoever. And I was like, this is great. But now increasingly these big chains are op- are creating whole new brands that yeah. are designed to feel local boutique-y. and designy and boutique. Mm-hmm. We need to take an ad break, but coming up, there is actually a hotel where you can spend a reasonable amount of money, not many hundreds of dollars a night, and still get a great experience. You'll find out. I'm teasing it. You'll find out the answer to what that place is after these. There is a brand that I'm super crazy about, but with a caveat. So, Moxie. Not exactly a boutique hotel. Moxie, however, however. There's nothing hyper-local about Moxie. Hang on a second. Where have you stayed in Moxie's? Uh, I don't know. I just feel they always look very small rooms and pink. So, Moxie, there is a gentleman called Mitchell Hockberg, and his um, company is called Lightstone. And he is the owner. So a lot of hotels that have big chains have different owners, right? Right. So they hire Marriott to come in and manage the hotels, but they don't actually own the asset. Um, Mitchell has Moxie Hotels in New York City. So he has not all of them. He has Times Square, uh, Chelsea, East Village, Lower East Side, Williamsburg. He also has the Moxie in South Beach, and he has the Moxie that uh, in downtown LA that opened recently. What's really interesting about Mitchell is he is a luxury hotel guy. He comes from a background of like super fancy, super swank hotels. He now does these real budget hotels, but he hires the same designers who do the luxury hotels. And he's like, okay, deliver a great product for me for one-tenth the budget. 
And yes, they're micro rooms, but they're super efficient. They have really clever use of space. And they really do integrate the environment and the local atmosphere in a great way. The one in Chelsea is on 28th Street, which is the flower district. It's on 28th between 6th and 7th. There's a plant wall that I love. It's like a two-story atrium plant wall. The amenities are all kind of have a floral theme to them, right? In South Beach, there's this really cool Cuban-style bodega on the ground floor. They worked with a local um, Cuban graffiti artist to paint all these really fun images throughout the ground floor. There's a really strong feeling of local stuff in each of the markets. And and so just to be clear, the reason these hotels succeed in reflecting their neighborhood, according to you, is not so much because of the branding gurus at what whoever owns Moxie, but rather because of the actual owner of the physical hotel who decided to invest in that. You know, it's it's like, it's a different... I, I always thought that... There's like, a cookie-cutter Moxie that every Moxie has. Well, no, I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that it's it's not because what Moxie is owned by Marriott. Right? Moxie is owned by Marriott. But, it, yeah. but like Marriott doesn't. It sounds like Marriott doesn't actually really can't really take the credit for these Moxies being as cool as they are. As cool as they are. Yeah, and which is why, like, I wouldn't universally tell anybody stay at any Moxie anywhere in the world, right? Because there is variation. We we wind up back where we started, which is like you need to go on to Fathom and <laughs> find out which hotel is good and which one isn't, because well, even 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 within a brand. You know, the Four Seasons Laguna Beach is not exactly going to be the Four Seasons Milan. Correct. And while there will be certain brand consistencies, because when an owner signs with Four Seasons, there are certain brand standards that Four Seasons wants to make sure their hotels have, right? Because the client doesn't know who the owner of the different Four Seasons is. They just know that they expect a Four Seasons level experience, service, amenities, um, product of bed, for instance. So that's why there can be variation um, among a Mandarin Oriental in Lake Como, which is an extraordinary experience, and a Mandarin Oriental in another part of the world. They're always going to be great, but there's some that are going to be greater than others. So we are going to do our homework and find out which ones are good and wind up dropping $2,500 a night on this kind of place. And because the experience is so great, we're not going to begrudge a penny of it. Listen, if that is your experience, well done. Seriously, if that is your experience, you should feel so good about um, about how you made your choices and how you spent your time. Again, I'm going to come back to you, though, it's not that different from a coat you buy or the lipstick or the meal that you have. If you feel like you got your money's worth, then it was a really great experience. Yeah, but okay, this is like with the single exception of business class seats on a plane. Yeah. Like lipsticks and meals don't cost $2,000. Like that th- that is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but you're also talking about a different scale, right? So if you are spending $50 for lipstick as opposed to $4 on a lipstick, that's a much bigger factor, right? And so But I feel like it is easier to spend an extra $46 on a lipstick. Yes, yes, of course. But but what I'm but the point I want to make is you don't have to spend $500 on dinner. 
right? You don't have right. to. It is true. But if you <laughs> but if you have that experience and is it's this transporting night and you then think about it for years and years to come, then it's okay that you spent 10x what you would normally spend to go out to dinner on that experience. So um you're not going to stay anywhere in a hotel. Well, let's say if you're spending $150, can there be an experience where you're spending 10 times that much? spending $1,500 and feeling like that was worth it. I came back. I felt refreshed. I felt new. I felt wonderful. I'm thinking about that hotel room. I'm thinking about the fact that from my bed, I saw giraffes when I woke up in the morning, um, that maybe that is worth spending 10 times what the average price of a hotel room would be. By the way, I recognize that is a ridiculous sum of money. For the first 20 years I was in New York City, $1,500 paid my rent for a month. So I recognize that these numbers that I'm just tossing about, they are really crazy numbers. And we are talking at the luxury hotel experience. I feel like one of the things going on here is that great American tradition of not giving people vacation time or people not taking vacation time. And that, like, if you only take one and a half weeks of vacation per year, then at that point... It's got to be worth it. It's got to be good. Your your annual vacation budget just gets squeezed into many fewer days, whereas, you know, if, you, if you're going, traveling for six weeks a year, it becomes much harder to afford that kind of money on a per-night basis. Totally. And again, because we are American and not French, we have fewer vacations that we get to take. Um, and so the stakes are higher, right? If I go out to dinner and I have a bad meal, then it's like, all right, well, I got to have dinner six other times this week. Something's going to balance it out. But if I go on a vacation and I pick a bad hotel, I'm not going to be picking that many more hotels throughout the course of the year. So that that bad experience feels extra painful, which is why I come back to hotels need to deliver really great experiences so that their clients and their guests, guests, not clients, guests, <laughs> guests, feel like this was a great choice for this very limited vacation time that I had. Broadly speaking, you've been doing this, you've been, Fathom is how old now? Somehow we're 13 years You're old. 13 years <laughs> yes. old and you've been traveling for longer than that. Yeah. Are they... Getting better is the experience. Uh, the is the hotel industry as a whole, like uh, post COVID. How would you compare it to where it was ten years ago? Well, first of all, we certainly use the word experience a lot more than we ever did. Right? <laughs> Every hotel wants is working. Well, most hotels are working very hard to deliver more than a safe place to sleep at night, and so um, hotels are. I think hotels are also. I don't know, maybe this is just me and what I've been paying attention to for a decade, but I feel like hotels are more part of the culture than they have been. In many ways, hotels have sort of become living rooms, right? I mean, if we even look at the Ace Hotel experience in New York City and the way that that before work from home was a thing, it seemed like every young freelancer in New York City was crammed into the Ace Hotel lobby. With these little making slips that their of home, paper with the Wi-Fi password on them. Yep, making making that their office away from office, right? So um, I do feel like hotels have become cultural meeting places in recent years, have become sort of urban living rooms, especially in cities where people may not have big apartments where they can invite all their friends over. 
And also a lot, if we want to think about a lot of chefs, it's always a very nice stepping stone for a small chef to get a great job as the chef of a fancy hotel. That lends cachet to the chef. It lends cachet to the hotel. So I think I'm getting lost on what I'm saying here. But I do think It sounds like you're saying yes, that they are getting better. I think that, well, they are trying to deliver more. Mm-hmm. They are trying to deliver more and make it more of an experience, not only through experiences, but through the food and beverage programming, through the health and wellness programming, through the spas, through all the other things that they're delivering in addition to, again, a bed to sleep in with too many pillows on it. Puffy Rossetti, it's been amazing having you on Slate Money. I have really enjoyed talking to you. So thanks to Jared Downing for producing. Thanks to Ben Richmond for keeping all of the knobs twiddled here in Brooklyn. And we will be back on Saturday with a regular Slate Money 